morning we are turning in the Old Testament to Deuteronomy chapter 30. I'll be reading verses 15 through 20. Give heed to the word of the living God. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways and to keep His commandments and His statutes and His judgments, that you may live and multiply, and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods, and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You will not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying His voice, and by holding fast to Him. For this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. Now we turn in the New Testament to Mark chapter 3. Looking this morning at verses 1 through 6. He entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that he might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silence. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Let's pray and ask God's blessing. Lord, we thank you for your word and its clear and true record of a day, a Sabbath day, 2,000 years ago, when you, Lord Jesus, entered a synagogue and did all that is here described, bless your word to our hearts and bless our hearts with strong faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the years of attending various conferences, I have grown skeptical of so-called question and answer sessions. 
These sessions usually include one or more of the featured speakers from the conference who field questions from the audience. I find these affairs to be almost entirely useless. Typically, it's a large waste of precious time. Some of my disdain for these Q&As comes from an experience that I had at a Greenville Theological Seminary conference the speaker had addressed the topic of the weekly Sabbath, and honestly, his presentation was very good. During the time for questions, I submitted a question that I really thought that he would answer. My question was this, are all acts of mercy on the Sabbath strictly necessary? And what I was getting at was whether the exceptions of mercy and necessity cover two different categories or are they just one category with two different aspects to them? Could you do a work of mercy that was not strictly necessary on the Sabbath? Now my own response is that there are two distinct and separate categories of exceptions to the rule of Sabbath observance. You could have works of necessity that were not deeds of mercy. And you could also have works of mercy that were not strictly necessary. Necessity and mercy are two different things, I think. Not just two ways of saying the same thing. But to my everlasting disappointment, the speaker didn't like my question. After much harumphing, he basically discarded the question as unworthy of a reply. Well, I still like my question. Because this question influences how we understand Jesus' own teaching and practice on the Sabbath day. Particularly when it comes to the miracles that he performs on the Sabbath, were those strictly necessary? Now, the Pharisees in the first century believed that medical care could be offered on the Sabbath day if the person was going to die for lack of care. These would be works of necessity that were also works of mercy. But if the person's life was not at risk, well then better to wait for the next day to heal the man. In the words of one synagogue official, there are six days in which work should be done, so come during them and get healed, and not on the Sabbath day. But our Lord Jesus begged to differ. He had a different perspective. So as we looked at, at this text this morning, I want to begin with a synagogue showdown. Then we're going to look at exceptional mercies and finish with some attitudes and actions. As Jesus continued his Galilean ministry, he faced increasing opposition from local religious leaders. The scribes and the Pharisees of Capernaum were more and more hostile to our Savior, and the conflicts grew in intensity. It now comes to a peak 
as Jesus is in the local synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now this is not a first for Jesus. His habit was to attend synagogue services on every Sabbath day unless he was providentially hindered. We have already seen him teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum to the amazement and appreciation of the common people. Never has a man taught like this, they said. He was also known to heal in their synagogue, having cast a demon out of a man in the Capernaum synagogue. Having dealt with the scruples of the Pharisees regarding the eating of grain on the Sabbath day, Jesus is now poised for a showdown in the synagogue. Commentator R.T. France suggests that it is at least possible that the argument in the grain field happened as Jesus and his disciples were heading to the synagogue that day. You can't prove it one way or another, but he says it's at least possible. And if that is the case, then very likely the very same Pharisees who had questioned him out in the grain field would be sitting there in the worship service. It's clear from the text that the Pharisees were plotting vain things against the Lord and against his anointed. Mark tells us that they were watching Jesus to see if he would heal on the Sabbath day. This observation was in order that they might accuse him of doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Now, it hardly needs to be said that they did not appreciate his casual disregard of their traditions. They viewed it as outrageous that Jesus would disobey the traditions of the elders on this important matter of Sabbath-keeping. And so they laid in wait, hoping, hoping that he would fall into their trap. Now, for his part... Jesus was not unaware of what they were thinking. He could see their hearts, and he knew how hardened they were in sin's deceitfulness. The Savior was not intimidated by them, or afraid of them and the charges they would bring against him. In fact, he wants to call the question, and to make them show themselves for what they were. France comments that Jesus is determined to force the issue by a public display both of his healing power and of his status as Lord of the Sabbath. He's not only not backing down, he's going right at him. He's provoking a confrontation. Now, Often we think Jesus was meek and mild. He was weak and wobbly. He was doing his best to deal with things as they came up, and he, he held his ground okay, but he certainly wasn't aggressive, was he? Oh, yeah, he was. He's very aggressive. He knew exactly what was going to happen here, 
And he chooses to make it happen. He knows the buttons to push and he pushes them with zeal. This should change our perception of Jesus from being this flighty, weak, kind of fairy guy running around in a nightgown, weakly knocking at the door hoping someone will open, to a mighty warrior who has got a sword strapped at his side and he is unafraid of any enemy. Bring it on! That's the attitude that Jesus has here. And so, he is ready to force them out into the open. And in order to do this, he calls the man with the withered hand to get up and come forward. Now, just, just imagine the scene. You know, here we are in the synagogue, and maybe back in one of the back rows, there's this man who's got a withered hand that's kind of maybe under his cloak. And he's not waving it around, but you know it's there, and he just kind of holds it close to his side. And Jesus says, you, come up here now. And the man gets up, and he walks forward, and there he is, right in the center of things. And, and Jesus is provoking this confrontation. He is making it happen in such a way that no one can ignore it. But when the man obeys... Jesus looks at his critics and he asks them two rhetorical questions. Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to kill? Now the answer to these questions is so obvious that even Ellie Grace could answer it correctly. A child knows the answer to this. This is not hard stuff. They say, well, we're going to have to form a study committee and we'll get back to you in two years with an answer. No, this is patently obvious what the right, the only answer is. Of course it is lawful to do good. Of course it is right to save a life. Who in their right mind would argue that it's really better to do harm or to kill on the Sabbath day? And this really echoes Moses' call in Deuteronomy 30 that we read. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. Don't choose death. Don't choose harm. Choose life. Do good. That's what's right. Without waiting for an answer from the skeptics, Jesus commands the man to extend his hand. And as the man stretched his hand out, his withered hand, in the sight of all, that withered hand was instantaneously healed and fully restored. Just imagine that. Here is this crippled hand, withered, shrunken, useless. And then as he's stretching it out, 
perhaps even in the act of stretching it out, everyone who's watching sees that withered limb suddenly restored to full health and strength. And what had been so useless now becomes entirely useful. What had been a detriment to him now became one of his strengths. And this restoration comes through the changing, transforming power of Christ. J.C. Ryle points out that this is really what Christ always does for his people. How in so many ways we are withered. Sin has withered us and, and rendered us useless in so many of our capacities and faculties. And Jesus comes in His grace and power to restore us to full strength. Instantly. Miraculously. And just imagine what this man must have thought and experienced as he felt life again in a withered, dead limb. How he he must have smiled and wept tears of joy to be whole again. Now, there, there were no cures or treatments or surgeries for this sort of thing in that day. And, and even today, when someone has this kind of withered appendage, you know, they may give a prosthetic, and that can take the place of but, but how do you go from something that has withered and is dead to something that is vital and alive and whole? Medicine can't do that. Only the power of Christ does that. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. An open miracle of undeniable good for this man was practiced right there in the synagogue on that Sabbath day. Jesus won. He won. His grace overwhelmed their hardness of heart and unbelief. And what a glorious day that was for the man himself, for his friends, his family, for everyone in the synagogue, even for the community itself. You know, words of these sorts of things were not kept secret and hidden. They spread like wildfire. Did you hear what happened in the synagogue today? I was right there in the front row and... Just all of a sudden, there it was. How did that happen? And, and there's a sense of amazement at the good Jesus did. And that's what Jesus is all about. Doing good. Giving life. Well, this particular encounter in the synagogue on the Sabbath really helps us to crystallize our Lord's teaching regarding the weekly Sabbath day. It's important for us to affirm once again that Jesus, the Son of Man, is Lord of the Sabbath. He possesses authority to make legislation and to enforce His own law. As the Lord of the Sabbath, He created the weekly Sabbath in the Garden of Eden. It was His creation ordinance, 
since he is the creator and the Lord of creation. He also gave legislation from Mount Sinai. Jesus is the lawgiver who issued the fourth commandment. In short, this rule is that we are to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days we should do all of our work, but the seventh is a rest from all our labors. And as we rest, we also worship and we serve and we enjoy our great God. And so the basic rule from the Lord of the Sabbath is work six days and rest the seventh. Now there's a true saying here that I think is very helpful. That saying goes like this, the exception proves the rule. In other words, the very existence of exceptions presuppose the existence of an overarching rule. If there is no rule, there could not possibly be an exception to the rule. Exceptions remind us that ordinarily, normally, the rule applies, just not in this case. So if the rule of the Sabbath is work six days and rest one day, the exceptions prove the rule. The two exceptions are these, acts of necessity and works of mercy. So exception number one, we learned out in the grain field. It is okay to pick and eat ripe grain out of the field if and when you are hungry. And likewise, if your ox falls into a ditch on the Sabbath, it's okay to lift your ox out of the ditch. So if you're driving to church and you get a flat tire, it is permissible for you to change your tire on the Lord's Day. Necessary. And if you are a doctor or a nurse, if you are a police officer or a preacher, necessity demands that you work on the Sabbath day. And works of necessity are not sin because Jesus makes this exception. So while the general rule is six days you shall labor and do all your work, the seventh is a day of rest, on the Sabbath day, I work every Sabbath day, except when I'm on vacation, because it's my job, and that's okay. There's no sin in that, because there's a true exception to the general rule. In the same manner, the second exception is also legitimate. Deeds of mercy are not violations of the Sabbath. Jesus did nothing wrong in healing the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath. His choice to heal on the Sabbath in the synagogue, no less, is perfectly and entirely legitimate. I might go even further and say that works of mercy are one of the best things you can do on the Sabbath. Now, if you know me well, you might suppose that I would say that naps are one of the best things you can do on the Sabbath. I'm not against naps. Doing good is even better than taking a good nap. Works of mercy 
are very much in accord with the nature of the Sabbath day. It's a day of mercy and a day for mercy. And when we engage in works of mercy, we are doing positive good. It was a positive good for Jesus to heal on the Sabbath. To restore life is virtuous. It is righteous. Now, throughout his earthly life and ministry, Jesus went about doing good. Peter summarizes Jesus' life in Acts chapter 10 this way, You know Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. And this explains Jesus' determination to frequently do good on the Sabbath and specifically to heal on the Sabbath. Now, this chapter is the only time it appears in Mark, but look at Matthew, look at Luke, look at John. Jesus made it a habit to heal people on the Sabbath day. It was a determination. It was a drive to do good. Though it was not strictly necessary to save all of those people from death, Jesus chose to do it anyway. Doing good is one of the highest forms of Sabbath keeping. And that is true for us today as well. What our Lord has done with His Sabbath is instructive for how we ought to view our Sabbath day. We also can do much good on the Lord's day. We can bring healing to hurting souls on the weekly Sabbath. And that's the reason why that answer at that conference years ago was so deeply disappointing. The message was almost as if the Reformed response is, there are six days in which work should be done, so come during them and get healed, but not on the Sabbath. But brothers and sisters, we are not Pharisees. We do not follow the traditions of the elders. We happily follow the lead of the Lord of the Sabbath. We are not bound by the scruples of the Jews. Now, I might just add a little caution here, a caution based on human nature. We should never use the exceptions in order to overthrow the rule. Jesus' example here does not give us cover to do anything and everything that we want to do on the weekly Sabbath. It's not right for us to slap a label on our chosen activity and claim that it's fine because it's works of necessity or mercy. I had to watch the Bears game. It was necessary. I had to watch the Packers. It was mercy. Oh, they're in such pain. They're suffering. I was coming alongside the Packers to show them mercy. You know, people will do this. We know people will do this. You give them an inch, they'll take a mile. And they'll say, well, there's these exceptions, 
And so my chosen Sabbath breaking is necessary and it's mercy. Mm-hmm. Don't play those games. Because even though you can fool gullible people like me, you do not fool the Lord of the Sabbath who sees your heart. And if your heart is yearning to break the Sabbath, you need to repent of that, not indulge that. So don't abuse these exceptions just in order to justify your Sabbath breaking. Jesus didn't do that. Neither should we. I want to finish by looking just briefly at some attitudes and actions. First of all, consider the attitudes of the Pharisees here. These men harbored an unholy anger against Jesus. They despised him because he wouldn't bow to their traditions. He wouldn't maintain their extra-biblical rules. And when he challenged them in the synagogue by asking them direct questions, they remained in stony silence. They would not answer the easiest question that had ever been put to them. And when he went ahead and healed the man with the withered hand, well, they went apoplectic. They stormed out of the synagogue. They spent the rest of their day in conference with some truly strange bedfellows. They hooked up with the Herodians. Now, the Herodians were loyalists of King Herod. They were not the traditional allies of the Pharisees. But they were united together in their hatred against Jesus. They had a will to destroy him by hook or by crook. And interestingly, they implicitly answered Jesus' rhetorical questions. Is it better to save a life or to kill? Well, clearly, they believed that plotting a murder was a better use of their Sabbath day than rejoicing with a man who had been healed of a debilitating infirmity. They sought to do harm on the Sabbath because that was more appropriate, a better use of the Sabbath. Let's conference on how we can murder someone. Oh, that's a really good use of your Sabbath. Their anger was misplaced, and it only compounded their guilt. This then explains Jesus' attitude. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, Jesus exhibited holy anger and righteous indignation at their hardness of heart. And remember, these were the religious leaders of the day. They exerted much influence over the common, ordinary Jewish person. But in truth, they were ungodly tyrants who exercised tyranny over the synagogue goers. Jesus was rightly disgusted with them. He had anger toward them. Jesus is no friend of the hypocrite who plays at being so holy and righteous 
and yet lives a wretched, miserable, sinful life of murder and hatred. Jesus also had real grief over their conduct. As he exposes their wickedness and their hypocrisy, he seeks to shame them into repentance. Couldn't he have just pulled them aside and explained that they should have a little better attitude about the Sabbath? No. It has to be open confrontation because men who have been so hardened by sin's deceitfulness need a jolt. Because sometimes only a strong jolt will break people out of the fog of such hypocrisy. But Jesus also has a different attitude. He has compassion towards this poor suffering man. And in this whole scene, the, the person that kind of gets lost in the scrum is this man who had suffered. His hand had been withered. We don't know how he came by this, whether it was an accident or whether perhaps it was a birth defect that he had lived with. But however it came, he had suffered. And Jesus cares for the suffering. His heart is full of compassion towards the afflicted and the downtrodden. And Jesus has compassion on other sufferers too, including those ordinary people who suffered under the ecclesiastical tyranny of the Pharisees and their ilk. So while he is full of anger and grief over these hard-hearted Pharisees, he is the very heart of tenderness and compassion toward this poor man. And so Jesus instructs us by his example so that we can know that when the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. That he cares for you. So if you find yourself this morning to be a hard-hearted Pharisee who is sitting in judgment of this whole sermon, I would just tell you to repent. But if you're just a suffering, struggling saint who's withered in so many ways, look to your compassionate Savior who understands you, who loves you, and who is in the process of healing you and making you whole so that you can live, choose life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your compassion towards this poor man and his poor withered hand. Thank you that you restored him and that you restore us too. Lord, continue your gracious work among your people, especially on the Sabbath day. Do good to us. We are so needy. And help us to show kindness and goodness to others as well. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.